Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure, Season 4 in American Tragedy. I am your host, your friend, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, your ear lover, your Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, international man of misery. And on the international front, by the way, things going, uh, oh, not so not so great. Uh, we've got two wars now, up from one just a few days ago. I mean, there's other conflicts going on across the globe, but let's say two two wars that Americans are paying attention to. We've got the Ukraine thing, and now we've got the Israel thing. And uh, yeah, it's been, I don't know what the word is. People, people are uh, very sure of themselves on this matter. You've got your Zionists who are sure of themselves. You've got your pro-Palestinians who are very sure of themselves. And then you've got a lot of people like myself who just look at the whole mess of this situation and wonder what can be done. And uh, to the best of my reckoning, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Instead, what you've got is another period of spasmodic violence about to engulf the region. That will probably continue for a couple months, then it will die down, and then it will start up again just as soon as uh, somebody provokes somebody. It's, uh, it's a horrible situation. My sympathies are with the Palestinians and with the Israelis who are caught up in this nonsense, who really just desire peace. And uh, you'd be hard-pressed to know that there are people who desire peace if one were to pay attention to social media or the cable news networks, uh, because peace does not sell. If it bleeds, 
so the old newspaper saying went, it leads, and uh, that's where we are. We're, we're bleeding. We're bleeding as a people. Um, as a human family, we are bleeding because we just cannot see past our own noses. I mean, these people, the people of that region, the, the Arabs, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Persians, what have you, they have been fighting over this land for time immemorial. Nobody has seemed to figure out how to not fight over this land. Now, I've never been there. The land must be pretty spectacular for everybody to be fighting over it for so many centuries. Onto the millennia, multiple millennia. I mean, what is it? What is it about this land that's so great? Nothing. It's rocks, it's dirt, some scrub, some old walls. But what it's got is history. It's got generation upon generation of people struggling and fighting and dying and bleeding into the sands there. And each drop of blood only solidifies the hatred. It is a disgrace and a disaster and totally antithetical to uh, what I feel like we're trying to achieve here both as a species, but more importantly, as a book club. All right? What are we trying to do here as a book club? Enjoy ourselves. Read a work of classic literature out loud and comment on it as we go. And yet, the world keeps intruding. Literature, for all of its benefits, has yet to figure out how to create lasting world peace. And if you can't do that literature, what good are you? Well, maybe literature isn't meant to be proscriptive. Maybe it's merely descriptive. It shows us our lives. It presents to us who we are. And the best literature, in my estimation, does that without judgment. It merely, it's almost like reportage, reportage of the human condition. That's what I'm looking for in literature. I'll tell you what I'm not looking for. Laughs. We've talked about this before. I'm never out there reading the funny, the funny novels. Not that I mind the occasional joke here and there. But, you know, that's why we read books called An American Tragedy. That's what we're looking for. Mayhem, murder, but the fictive kind. Not the actual kind that we see on our TV screens these days. It's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing. So let us... Get uh, let us let us enjoy our escapist activity, shall we not? As we pick it up with chapter twelve in American tragedy, uh, we we've been spending a lot of time with Clyde, as you know, Clyde Griffiths, who uh, has been taken with some of these girls that he's with. You know, the 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 Hortense and the the Louise and the other one who uh, is is giving him a little mind, and then Hortense got a little jealous and taught him how to dance and. Well, anyway, then uh, what's-his-face Clyde confronted Hortense and said, What are you doing? You're flirting with everybody at this party. She said, No, I'm not. But, you know, Clyde's basically, and she's not into Clyde, but he's got some money in his pocket, and she does like money. You know, kind of a gold digger, that Hortense, our Arabella. 
Let's see what happens in chapter 12. Now, trivial as this contact may seem to some, meaning the contact between Clyde and Hortense, it was of the utmost significance to Clyde. Up to this time, he had never seen a girl with so much charm who would deign to look at him, or so he imagined. And now he had found one, and she was pretty, and actually interested sufficiently to accompany him to dinner and to a show. It was true, perhaps, that she was a flirt, and not really sincere with anyone, and that maybe at first he could not expect her to center her attentions on him, but who knew? Who could tell? True to her promise, on the following Tuesday she met him at the corner of 14th Street and Wyandotte near the Green Davidson, and so excited and flattered and enraptured was he that he could scarcely arrange his jumbled thoughts and emotions in any seemly way. But to show that he was worthy of her, he had made an almost exotic toilet, hair pomaded, a butterfly tie, new silk muffler and silk socks, to emphasize his bright brown shoes, purchased especially for the occasion. Well, Clyde is turning himself into a right proper dandy, is he not? Fixing his exotic toilet as he is, with the silk socks and the silk muffler. My God, what a sight he is. The hair pomaded just so. If I'm not mistaken, he might even have a stick pin to put into that tie. Probably feeling pretty good about himself, too. But once he had re-encountered Hortense, whether all of this was of any import to her, he could not tell. For after all, it was her own appearance, not his, that interested her. Well, that is a sentence and a truism, is it not? It was her own appearance that interested her. And what was more, a trick with her, she chose to keep him waiting until nearly seven o'clock, a delay which brought about in him the deepest dejection of spirit for the time being, for supposing, after all, in the interval, she had decided that she did not care for him and did not wish to see him any more. Well, then he would have to do without her, of course, but that would prove that he was not interesting to a girl as pretty as she was, despite all the clothes, he, nice clothes he was now able to wear, and the money he could spend. He was determined that, girl or no girl, he would not have one who was not pretty. <laughs> Ratterer in Heglin did not seem to mind whether the girl they knew was attractive or not, but with him it was a passion. The thought of being content with one not so attractive almost nauseated him. Well, Clyde Griffiths. We are full of ourselves, are we not? Well, maybe that's the wrong word, full of ourselves. But I think Clyde, you know, Clyde is, uh, is of a type, is he not? The Scriver, the Jimmy, what is, what's the name of that? Uh, uh, how, uh, what, Sammy Run, Sammy Glick. He's a Sammy Glick. He's a, you know, he's an American archetype. The flashy kid who comes from nothing but wants the world. He's Madonna. That's, that's, you know, he's a Madonna type. And not the, I mean, the pop figure, not the religious figure. Remember when Dick Clark was on American Bandstand and Madonna made her first appearance and he said, 
what what do you what what do you want to do? What do you what, where do you want to be in ten years or whatever the question was? And she said, I want to rule the world. Well, that's Clyde Griffiths, you know. Except instead of black rubber bracelets, he's got a new silk muffler and silk socks, and he can't be with somebody who is not so attractive. I mean, if he were, it would nauseate him. And yet here he was now on the street corner in the dark, the flare of many signs and lights about, hundreds of pedestrians hurrying hither and thither, the thought of pleasurable intentions and engagements written upon the faces of many, and he, he alone, might have to turn and go somewhere else, eat alone, go to a theater alone, go home alone, and then to work again in the morning. He had just about concluded that he was a failure, when out of the crowd, a little distance away, emerged the face and figure of Hortense. She was smartly dressed in a black velvet jacket with a reddish-brown collar and cuffs, and a bulgy round tam of the same material with a red leather buckle on the side, and her cheeks and lips were rouged a little, and her eyes sparkled, and as usual, she gave herself all the airs of one very well content with herself. Oh, hello, I'm late, ain't I? I couldn't help it. You see, I forgot I had another appointment with a fella, a friend of mine. Gee, a peach of a boy, too. And it was only at six. I remembered that I had the two dates. Well, I was in a mess then, so I had to do something about one of you. I was just about to call you up and make a date for another night. Only I remembered you wouldn't be at your place after six. Tom never is, and Charlie always is in his place till 6.30 anyhow, sometimes later, and he's a peach of a fella that way, never grouchy or nothing, and he was going to take me to the theater and to dinner too. He has charge of the cigar stand over here at the Orphea, so I called him up. Well, he didn't like it so very much, but I told him I'd make it another night. Now ain't you glad? Don't you think I'm pretty nice to you? Disappointing a good-looking fellow like Charlie for you? Well, I mean, she's just giving him the business, isn't she? Terrible. Just terrible what she's doing and knows that she's doing it. Doing it on purpose. Probably didn't even have another date that night. Just wanted to get Clyde all riled up. Playing him like a fiddle. She had caught a glimpse of the disturbed and jealous and yet fearsome look in Clyde's eyes as she talked of another, and the thought of making him jealous was a delight to her. She realized that he was very much smitten with her, so she tossed her head and smiled, falling into step with him as he moved up the street. You bet it was nice of you to come, he forced himself to say, even though the reference to Charlie as a peach of a fella seemed to affect his throat and his heart at the same time. What chance had he to hold a girl who was so pretty and self-willed? Gee, it looks swell tonight, he went on, forcing himself to talk and surprising himself a little with his ability to do so. I like the way that hat looks on you and your coat, too. He looked directly at her, his eyes lit with admiration, in eager yearning filling them. He would have liked to kiss her, her pretty mouth, only he did not dare here, or anywhere, as yet. I don't wonder why you have to turn down engagements. You're pretty enough. Don't you want some roses to wear? 
They were passing a flower store at the moment, and the thought of them put the thought of the gift in his mind. He had heard Heglin say that women liked fellows who did things for them. Oh, sure, I'd like some roses, she replied, turning into the place. Or maybe some of those violets, they look pretty. They'd go better with this jacket, I think. She was pleased to think that Clyde was sporty enough to think of flowers, also that he was saying such nice things about her. At the same time, she was convinced that he was a boy who had had little, if anything, to do with girls. Well, she's right there. And she preferred youths and men who were more experienced, not so easily flattered by her, not so easy to hold. Yet she could not help thinking that Clyde was a better type of boy or man than she was accustomed to, more refined. And for that reason, in spite of his gaucheness in her eyes, she was inclined to tolerate him, to see how he would do. Well, these are pretty nifty, she exclaimed, picking up a rather large bouquet of violets and pinning them on. I think I'll wear these. And while Clyde paid for them, she posed before the mirror, adjusting them to her taste. At last, being satisfied as to their effect, she turned and exclaimed, Well, I'm ready, and took him by the arm. Well, let's pause for a moment here as we contemplate the pretty Hortense with her new violets pinned to her chest and Clyde Griffith's uh, utterly bewitched with this vision and her slight distaste at him being bewitched by her, even though she is gobbling up the attention. If it comes too easy, she may not like it so much. She is strong-willed, as he said, and she is also maybe a little bit smarter than we had given her credit for. Smart in the way of Arabella, you know? Manipulative, conniving, knows what she wants, knows how to get it, enjoys taking advantage of her blushing youth, and, uh, you know, we've all known young women like that, and probably some young men as well. As I said, let's take a break. We'll be back in a moment here on Obscure. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. Back on Obscure, we're on a date with Clyde and his gal Hortense. Well, she's not his gal, not by any stretch of the imagination, but she has consented to be seen with him out on the town, and he has purchased her a little bouquet of violets. And he seems more refined than the kind of person she is used to, and for this reason she is willing to give him a chance. Clyde 
being not a little overawed by her spirit and mannerisms, was at a loss what else to say for the moment. But he need not have worried. Her chief interest in life was herself. Gee, I told you I had a swift week of it last week, out every night until three, and Sunday until nearly morning. My, that was some rough party I was to last night, all right. Ever been down to Burkitt's at Gifford's Ferry? Oh, a nifty place, all right. Right over the big blue at 39th. Dancing in summer, and you can skate outside when it's frozen in winter or dance on the ice in the niftiest little orchestra. Clyde watched the play of her mouth and the brightness of her eyes and the swiftness of her gestures without thinking so much of what she said, very little. Wallace Trone was along with us. Gee, he's a scream of a kid. And afterwards, when we were sitting down to eat ice cream, he went out in the kitchen and blacked up and put on a waiter's apron and coat and then comes back and serves us. That's one funny boy. And he did all sorts of funny stuff with the dishes and spoons. <laughs> Clyde sighed because he was by no means as gifted as the gifted Trone. Well, certainly not. I mean, that's a funny boy. He did funny stuff with the dishes and spoons. Not sure what that expression means. He went out in the kitchen and blacked up. What does that mean? Blacked up. I'm not sure what that means, but all is forgiven when you can do funny things with dishes and spoons. I wonder if uh, Dreiser even had it in his mind what funny things he was talking about, or if that was just sort of a scribble that he tossed down on the page and thought to himself, well, let people use their imaginations. Because frankly, for the life of me, I'm not, I can't quite imagine what funny things anybody can do really with dishes and spoons. I mean, you can play spoons as a musical instrument and that's kind of funny, I guess. The way they clatter and clank. <laughs> but dishes? I don't know. Don't really know. And then, Monday morning, when we all got back, it was nearly four, and I had to get up again at seven. I was all in. I could have chucked my job, and I would have, only for the nice people down at the store and Mr. Beck. He's the head of my department, you know, and say how I do plague that poor man. I sure am hard on that store. One day I comes in late after lunch. One of the other, other girls punched the clock for me with my key, see, and he was out in the hall and he saw her and he says to me afterwards, about two in the afternoon, say, look here, Miss Briggs. He always calls me Miss Briggs because I won't let him call me nothing else. He'd try to get fresh if I did. That loan and that key stuff don't go. Cut that stuff out. This ain't no follies. I had to laugh. He does get so sore at times at all of us, but I put him in his place just the same. He's kind of soft on me, you know. He wouldn't fire me for worlds, not him. So I says to him, see here, Mr. Beck, you can't talk to me in any such style as that. I'm not in the habit of coming late often, and what's more, this ain't the only place I can work in KC. I can't be late once in a while without hearing about it. You can just send up for my time, that's all, see? I wasn't going to let him get away with that stuff. And just as I thought, he weakened. All he says was, well, just the same, I'm warning you. Next time, maybe Mr. Tierney will see you, and then you'll get a chance to try some other store, all right. He knew he was bluffing, and that I did, too. I had to laugh, and I saw him laughing with Mr. Scott about two minutes later. But, gee, I certainly do pull some raw stuff around there at times. Well, so she's a talker, isn't she? And, as described, her favorite subject does seem to be herself. She is probably more enamored with herself than Clyde is with her, and I imagine that another fellow's affection towards her is sustenance 
for that self-regard. It feeds it and coddles it and blows it into a rip-roaring fire, and this is the result. You've got monologuing going on as they walk down the street, monologuing over trivial events, such as her being late to work one day and the raw deal she gives to her boss over there at the store, Mr. Beck. And we are led to believe that Mr. Beck, too, is infatuated with her, as apparently are all members of the male species, and therefore she can get away with moiter, moiter, over at the shoppy in which she toils. And Clyde is just happy to be with her, his arm and hers interlinked as they walk down the street. By then she and Clyde, with scarcely a word on his part, and much to his ease and relief, had reached Frizzell's. And for the first time in his life, he had the satisfaction of escorting a girl to a table in such a place. Now he really was beginning to have a few experiences worthy of the name. He was quite on edge with the romance of it, because of her very high estimate of herself, her very emphatic picture of herself as one who was intimate with so many youths and girls who were having a good time. He felt that up to this hour, he had not lived at all. Swiftly, he thought of the different things she had told him. Burkitt's on the big blue, skating and dancing on the ice. Charlie Trone, the young tobacco clerk with whom she had the engagement for tonight. Mr. Beck at the store, who was so struck on her that he couldn't bring himself to fire her. And as he saw her order whatever she liked, without any thought of his purse, he contemplated quickly her face, figure, the shape of her hands, so suggestive always of the delicacy or roundness of the arm, the swell of her bust, already very pronounced, the curve of her eyebrows, the rounded appeal of her smooth cheeks and chin. There was something also about the tone of her voice, unctuous, smooth, which somehow appealed to and disturbed him. To him, it was delicious. Gee, if he could only have such a girl all for himself. Well, I suspect you will, Clyde, and I suspect that old aphorism, be careful what you wish for, will enter your own lexicon, because this will not end well for you. Nor for her, I suspect, because she is going to allow herself to be trundled into his care, and she will find him unworthy. Of that I have no doubt. She will be diddling with the cabana boy in no time. You know, we're going to blink our eyes. She's going to be 38 years old, hanging out by the pool. The cabana boy's going to come by with a bucket of lemonade. And next thing you know, they're going to disappear in the changing rooms. And Clyde will probably walk in on them. That's what I foresee. Just nothing good can come of this, you know? She has not aggregated for herself any of herself beyond her physical appearance. And that will reap certain benefits in the short term, but perhaps will leave some misery in the long. And, uh, I don't know, these are just life lessons that one has to, one has to learn. And in here, as without, she clattered on about herself, not at all impressed, apparently, by the fact that she was dining here, 
a place that to him had seemed quite remarkable. When she was not looking at herself in a mirror, she was studying the bill of fare and deciding what she liked. Lamb with mint jelly, no omelette, no beef, oh yes, filet of mignon with mushrooms. She finally compromised on that with celery and cauliflower, and she would like a cocktail, oh yes. Clyde had heard Heglin say that no meal was, was worth anything without a few drinks, so now he had mildly suggested a cocktail and having secured that in a second, she seemed warmer and gayer and more gossipy than ever. But all the while, as Clyde noticed, her attitude, in so far as he was concerned, was rather distant, impersonal. If for so much as a moment he ventured to veer the conversation ever so slightly to themselves, his deep personal interest in her whether she was really very deeply concerned about any other youth, she threw him off by announcing that she liked all the boys, really. They were all so lovely, so nice to her, they had to be. When they weren't, she didn't have anything more to do with them. She tied a can to them, as she once expressed it. Her quick eyes clicked, and she tossed her head defiantly. And Clyde was captivated by all this, her gestures, her poses, mouez, M-O-U-E-S. How do you pronounce that? Mouez? Let's look it up. M-O-U-E-S. I want to say mores, but that's not right. Mouez. Let's see what what this means. I got the old research machine cranked up, and uh, it wanted to, it took me to, to, Mouse definition, but that's not what I want. I want moo, moo. All right, let's look this up. Moo, a little grimace, a pout. Let's hear it. Moo. Thank you. And uh, when you pluralize it, you know, because it's a French word, do you, do you add the S or do you not? And now there's no pronunciation for the plural. I, I want to say you don't pronounce the S because it's French. Moo. You're not going to say moos because then you got a cow. And I don't think that's what they want. I'm going to say moo, but I'm going to, I'm going to, but it's going to be plural. <sighs> her gestures, her poses, moo, and attitudes were sensuous and suggestive. She seemed to like to tease, promise, lay herself open to certain charges and conclusions, and then to withhold and pretend that there was nothing to all of this, that she was very unconscious of anything save the most reserved thoughts in regard to herself. In the main, Clyde was thrilled and nourished by this mere proximity to her. It was torture, and yet a sweet kind of torture. He was full of the most tantalizing thoughts about how wonderful it would be if only he were permitted to hold her close, kiss her mouth, bite her even. My God, bite her. Teddy Dreiser, you little minx, with your BDSM. How dare you, sir, bite her even, to cover her mouth with his, to smother her with kisses, to crush and pet her pretty figure. She would look at him at moments with deliberate swimming eyes, and he actually felt a little sick and weak 
almost nauseated. His one dream was that by some process, either of charm or money, he could make himself interesting to her. And yet, after going with her to the theater and taking her home again, he could not see that he had made any noticeable progress. For throughout the performance of the Corsair at Livy's, Hortense, who, because of her uncertain interest in him, was really interested in the play, talked of nothing but similar shows she had seen, as well as actors and actresses and what she had thought of them, and what particular youth had taken her. And Clyde, instead of leading her in wit and defiance and matching her experiences with his own, was compelled to content himself with approving of her. And all the time she was thinking that she had made another real conquest. And because she was no longer virtuous, and she was convinced that he had some little money to spend and could be made to spend it on her, she conceived the notion of being sufficiently agreeable, nothing more, to hold him, keep him attentive, if possible, while at the same time she went her own way, enjoying herself as much as possible with others, and getting Clyde to buy and do such things for her as might fill gaps when she was not sufficiently or amusingly enough engaged elsewhere. End of chapter four. Well, at least she knows her own mind. And if Clyde were perhaps a bit more experienced in the ways of the world, he would recognize this for what it is. Which is a shakedown. Basically, she's shaking him down. She, he, she want, he, she wants a sugar daddy. And while he may not be a silver-haired fox of any distinction, he does have some coins in his pocket that he is willing to deposit in her care, or at least to deposit to the uh, to her feeding and entertainment and nourishment of body and spirit. But she is promising him nothing in return really neither her affections nor anything else. And if he were a little bit more self-aware, he would understand the shabby bargain into which he is placing himself. Perhaps he believes that over time he will woo her, he will win her, but the fact of the matter is she's a young gal. She does not wish to be tied down. She does not wish to have a steady bow. She wants only to dance and drink and be gay as the night stretches into morning. I have known many girls such as this. When I was in my 20s in New York City, there were so many girls that I felt similarly uh, about as Clyde feels to Hortense. So many young, attractive women in their flouncy night dresses and their rouged cheeks and their good earrings and their fake eyelashes running up and down sidewalks in Manhattan at two o'clock in the morning, begrudging the sun for its existence and begrudging me for my affections towards them, even though my affections were for them. Food. Well, let's leave it there with my own embittered memories of being just a poor boy. The only, uh, you know, just I'm, I'm a Paul Simon character right now is how I feel. 
And so be it. We have all felt like either Teddy Dreiser or Paul Simon characters at one point or another because they speak to the universality of the human experience. And so we recognize ourselves in our own, in, in the thwarted ambitions of their characters. We recognize those thwarted ambitions as our own. And we know the pining and the yearning of the human heart towards one that is just out of reach. It is far worse to be to 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 uh, have these affections for somebody in your proximity, somebody again just out of reach, than it is to feel this way about somebody distant, somebody you know you cannot be with. Well, in the case of Hortense slash Arabella, Clyde is uh, you know he thinks he can narrow that gap, he thinks he can close the distance between them but I am afraid he is mistaken. And so we will leave it there. A little bit of escapism uh, as the world lurches into yet another war. Maybe we'll find another after that. Who knows? The world feels very destabilized at the moment. And uh, thank God we have books in which to bury our heads. Yes, yes. We are ignoring the world for the length of this podcast, as it should be. So let's get back to it. Let's, uh, let's get back to the anxieties and scariness of a world beyond our control. And we will pick it up again on another exacerbating episode exacerbating. I think I meant to say exasperating. Exacerbating means to make something worse. Exasperating uh, means to uh, create a state of, what would you call exasperation? A state of uh, the sort of uh, frustrated uh, helplessness. And I'm not sure why this should be considered an exasperating episode of Obscure, but that's the word that came to mind. And so that's the word we will go with. Another exasperating episode of Obscure, but until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. If you listen and like this show, please help us out with a rating and a review. We want to be obscure, but not that obscure. It's an easy way to support the show. Thanks. Thanks.